1946, there was a device that was made that really helped people make decisions. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those spots when you just can't decide what you should do. And so 1946, this thing was made called the Magic 8 Ball, okay? Don't know if you've ever used this to help decide, a, uh, you know, make a decision, if you just had fun with it. Um, hopefully, it wasn't for something serious, but like I was kind of playing around with it. And so I thought I'd ask it like if I should have steak today for lunch. And so it's going to tell me, once I hit it, it says... Outlook, not so good. So I'm probably not having steak today. Might ask if the Chiefs are going to win today. Wondering about that. And then somehow it's always upside down. It tells me you can rely on it. Okay, so there we go. Third question, should I end my sermon right now? Let's see here. Maybe I'm nervous. Maybe I'm not going to pay attention anyway. And it says most likely. Okay. <laughs> That is still better than last night, which just told me, yes, that I should stop right now. Here's the thing. I don't know, you know, how you make decisions as far as trying to figure out the answer, but hopefully in real life, the Magic 8-Ball is not it. I remember a Super Bowl commercial a few years ago that Doritos did, and someone walks into the office, and he is holding his crystal ball. He tells his coworker, look at my crystal ball. And his coworker says, that looks a lot like a snow globe to me. He said, oh no, this is a crystal ball. Look, you can ask it anything. He says, will we have free Doritos in the office today? And so then he takes this snowball, a snow globe, and he throws it across the room at this vending machine that is, has glass in the front that is full of Doritos. And it just breaks the glass in front. And the guy turns and says, the answer is yes. And so like you see these people going and getting Doritos because the crystal ball has said yes. To which then at the end of the commercial, the coworker saw how well it worked. And so he like asks the, the crystal ball, will I get that big promotion? To which then he turns and throws the crystal ball through the door. However, through the door frame, the boss is coming and it hits the boss and knocks him down to which then the other person comes and says, promotion, not likely. And so like just this idea of trying to figure out decisions. And so again, I hope that those are fun, but that's not the real way of trying to figure out what should I do? And that's the question that we're going to look at today. What should I do here in just a little while, but we'll look at maybe the more biblical way to come to a conclusion of that question. For now, why don't you turn to the book of Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles or devices, because that's where we're going to be, Luke chapter 2. And up to this point, like we have been in Luke chapter 1 for quite a few weeks. We have looked at Zechariah. We have seen Mary. We have seen Elizabeth's story and how all these things come together. We saw the birth of John the Baptist all put together within chapter 1. In fact, in 76 verses that we looked at, we didn't read all of them, but as a whole, 76 verses we looked at, there was one verse about Joseph. Like one verse mentions his name. And so now we get to chapter two and we get to have a smaller or another glance at him, but it's still not a big one. Both um, of these accounts of Joseph from chapter one and chapter two, you'd be like, man, I'd kind of like to have more. Or maybe you read this birth account of Jesus and you're like, it seems so brief compared to everything else. Um, you read this section, it sounds all nice and put together. And yet it was anything but that. And so if you're in Luke chapter two, let's kind of take a look at this. The first three verses say this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
says, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. It says, and everyone went to his own town to register. All right, so as you read this, you might hear people telling the story about Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus, and most people will be able to include that they went to Bethlehem because of a census. Let me tell you a little bit more about that census. That census was ordered by Caesar Augustus, which was his title? But his real name was Gaius Octavius, and he had been adopted by his great uncle, Julius Caesar, who ended up being assassinated. And so at only 19 years old, when that event occurred, he was already a shrewd politician, and he ended up becoming one of the three most powerful men who eventually overtook his rivals. And so later on during his reign, he began to take this census of the entire Roman Empire for the purpose of being able to collect taxes more efficiently. Like I would know who's there, how many people would be able to collect those taxes. And he couldn't do it all at once because Rome was so big and it took lots of resources to do this, to count the people. And so he went province by province by province. And every time when he would go to a certain area, the method of enrolling people had to match that group of people and the geographical area. And so when it got to the Jewish people, they would register by their tribe and their clan and their family as they had done throughout their history. And so to do this, they would need to return to uh, their ancestral city. All right, and so that's what's going on here. In that verse, we also read about this governor named Quirinius. All right, which means probably not a whole lot to most of us. But if you're reading history and understanding things, it talks about how this was the first census that was taken underneath Quirinius because the second one was a lot more well-known because there were all sorts of riots and things going on during this one. And so Luke is basically saying, this is the first one. This is 10 years earlier than that. And so again, for us who live 2,000 years later, it kind of helps us put a couple pieces together. But for the readers of this time, it really does help them understand the exact time frame, the political situation of everything that was going on during Jesus' birth. Okay, and so then we get to verses 4 through 7. Luke writes this, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And so he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So now again, we get to read about Joseph, and we know that he lives in Nazareth from this verse and from a couple weeks ago when we looked at Mary, that you know what, they're in Nazareth. We also know that he's from the line of David, which means that for this census, he has to return to Bethlehem. That's where they have to go. That's about a 70-mile trip. And with Jesus being born in Bethlehem, he is fulfilling what the prophet Micah wrote in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, but you... Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old and from ancient times. And as I read that and I just kind of step back and think about everything going on, I love how God uses an earthly king to fulfill his divine purpose. Like Caesar Augustus didn't make this ruling, this decree, with the purpose of getting Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, and yet God used it to accomplish Scripture. 
man, that is a great reminder to you and I in those days of working that God is often working even when we don't see it. Like his hand is orchestrating the things that he wants to accomplish. And so in this text, we see that Joseph is pledged to be married to Mary. This word betrothed, it's a step beyond what we consider in our engagement time frame. Our engagement, hey, we are promising that we are going to marry someone. But with this betrothal, there is even a deeper commitment attached to it. You can't just break it off if you feel like eh, things aren't going the way we should, like we can today. And so we'll get into that in just a moment. But we see that with Mary and Joseph. And then this couple, when they're in Bethlehem, Jesus is born. She wraps him in cloths, and she places him in a manger. I think it's important just to remind ourselves that when we hear that word manger, we need to tell ourselves this is a feeding trough. So many pictures, we have it all made up nice and neat, and maybe there's hay, and oh, Jesus would have loved sleeping here, but like this is an animal feeding trough that he is placed in. And so in this passage, we get to understand that Jesus was born under messianic claims, like he is going to be the one who will come and save the people. And yet at the exact same time, we see him being born in humble circumstances. Now, I want to take just a moment to dive into the end of verse 7. And if you don't want your picture of the nativity ruined, you can feel free to cover your ears. That is totally okay with me. But I feel like I need to tell you something just as we look at this text here. You see, because we read that there was a manger and that there was no room at the inn, we picture Jesus being born in a barn or a stable or maybe even a cave where the animals were. And so probably at this point I've said, you're like, yep, that's exactly what I picture. Let me tell you this. The word inn that is used there, that there was no room at the inn, that Greek word is only used three times in the entire New Testament. And the other two times it is used, it refers to a guest room or the upper room where the Passover meal was held with Jesus. Like, that's the exact same word. It is not the same word that Jesus uses when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. You know what? After the Samaritan rescues the Jew who had been beaten up and takes him to an inn to be healed, that's a completely different word. In fact, if you watched Expecting Christmas that Nick had been putting on, he talked about that there's no innkeeper actually mentioned here. Oftentimes you'll see the kids' pageants, and there's an innkeeper, but it doesn't have him included here. Bethlehem was probably not big enough to have an inn the way we picture it today. In fact, inns were more like guest rooms that people allowed travelers to stay in. In fact, Palestinians were known for their hospitality. They didn't want to just kick anyone to the curb, so they would often look, hey, come and stay with us. Or if the inn was its own building, it often would have been a second story that had a couple rooms with underneath it a place that housed the animals. So more than likely, when Mary and Joseph arrive at Bethlehem, there's actually no room for them in anyone's guest room. Like, not a hotel. And so they end up giving birth in a main room or the front room without any type of privacy. Now, as I say that, you might be like, wait, 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 wait. Here's some opposition to that. You mentioned a manger a while ago. Like, who would have a feeding trough for animals in their front room? That doesn't make any sense, except that if you understand their culture, when it got really cold, some of their animals they did bring in to the front room. Okay, it's not like our living room. They would bring that in to watch out and protect them. So it does line up. Now, even telling you all that, 
I hate to be someone who like teaches new ideas as fact when traditions have been passed down year after year after year. Because I'm like, have we really learned something new in 2,000 years that no one else ever thought of? Like, I hate doing that aspect. And so we really don't know 100% sure. I mean, at some point, the original translators to English used the word in for some reason. But here's what could have happened. Jesus could have been born in a cave, like that still could be true, whether because it was a house or it was the only space open. Jesus could have been born in a stable that was underneath the second story of an inn. He could have been born, you know, out back in a stable behind an inn the way we picture, or he might have been born in the front room that shepherds still could have come and visited. Whatever the case is, like all four of those can still be taken from Scripture as our basis. And so whichever one you end up choosing to believe, it doesn't make the Bible inaccurate. It doesn't change your faith in Him. It doesn't change the truth of Jesus' entry into the world was still with very humble circumstances. And can you imagine being Mary, like just thinking, I'm giving birth where? Like, God, I understand that you are in control, but like, this is not the way that I pictured it would be. Or maybe put yourself in Joseph's sandals just for a moment. Like, I'm supposed to take care of her. And these circumstances, like, man, this is not how I pictured it. This is out of my control. And yet, God, I still know that you're in charge. Like, no matter the thoughts, no matter the feelings, no matter the curveballs they face, God used Mary and Joseph to bring his son into the world. Now, we just read seven verses about the birth of Jesus, and still only two of those verses mention Joseph or he. But luckily for us, we get to read about Joseph a little bit more in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1, all right? So we get another glimpse into this birth narrative. And when Matthew writes his gospel, he starts out by giving a genealogy. This person was the father of this, who was the father of this person, who was the father of this person. And again, that may not mean a ton to you or I, but it meant a lot to the Jewish people who genealogies were a big deal. And so once this is written, then Matthew gets into the birth narrative. And so starting in verse 18, we're going to read chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 here. This is what Matthew says about the birth of Jesus. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And so some of the things we read there, we already know from Luke, that Mary and Joseph, they're betrothed, they're pledged to be married. We know that she is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But then we see more of his story, his reaction to finding out that Mary is pregnant when he knows, well, I'm not the father. And he doesn't believe her story. And even amongst not believing her story, he still wants to honor her. Like he doesn't want to disrespect her. Like how? Well, he has a couple options for divorce. Remember, I told you that once you're betrothed, it's a little deeper than our engagement. You have to go through this divorce ceremony before you can split apart. And there's a couple options of what you can do. One, you can have a public trial. And there's a great chance that if this were to happen, Mary would have been killed. If the people wouldn't have killed her, they would have at least seen her in a humiliated state. And Joseph doesn't want to do that. Instead, he opts for the second option of giving her a certificate of divorce in the presence of two witnesses. 
but it still accomplishes the separation, but he doesn't want to drag her name through the mud. Why would he do this? Because it says that Joseph was a righteous man. And this shows us a lot about his character in only a couple verses. And yet the story doesn't end here. God is about to get directly involved. So if we read verses 20 and 21, it says this. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so here we have the angel's message confirming what Mary had already told him, that Mary wasn't defiled, that she had not done anything appropriate. And he's told, you will have a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He is going to be a special child. He will save the people from their sins. Now, 2,000 years later, we understand what that means. But even in this message, Joseph wouldn't have thought of a spiritual state like we do. He would have thought, okay, he's going to come and save the Jewish people as a result of their sins, from the punishment of their sins. That is what he is going to come and do. And yet we know that the true meaning of this prophecy is not found in a cavalry, but in Calvary. So after this message is given to Joseph, we get a little bit of extended explanation from Matthew, again, trying to put all the pieces together for his readers. And so let's read 22 and 23. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so I told you already that genealogies were important to the Jewish people, but so was the prophecy, okay? And again, Matthew's gospel is written to the Jewish people, and so he's connecting this God that we have been serving for so long has mentioned this will happen, and he mentions that Isaiah passage that we looked at two weeks ago with Mary. And so God really is coming to earth through this baby. And so the last two verses in this section say this. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home in his, as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And so you read this in this whole encounter, and what does Joseph do? He obeys. He kept Mary as his wife. He chose not to consummate the marriage until after the baby is born, and Joseph chooses to obey. He wouldn't have just struggled, you know, the next morning going, huh, does that dream have any meaning? He wouldn't have just been going, hmm, was that just like bad pizza I ate last night? And so that's what I'm trying to figure out. Because back then, dreams were generally viewed as divine communication. And so he obeys. At least what we can tell, he obeys without hesitation. Do you ever wonder what that conversation between Joseph and Mary was like after that? Like, is he apologizing as much as he can? I am so sorry. I didn't believe you. Like, you got to believe me. Like, this is a crazy story. You like, understand that? I wonder, as they're talking, do they compare angel stories? Oh, this is like the vision that I had. And is it the same angel? You know, all those kind of things. I don't know. I wonder, had Joseph actually told her that he intended to divorce her? Or did that actually come out in this conversation? Hey, I was going to do this, but the angel came and spoke this to me. We don't actually know a timeline in that. Can you imagine Mary's relief? That after this conversation, knowing that you are not in this by yourself. In any case, by the end of this passage, Joseph and Mary, they are on the same page. And so just as the birth accounts of what Matthew and Luke record for us, as far as important, are different, so is where they go from here. 
And so Luke writes about the shepherds that show up on the day of the birth of Jesus. And then he writes about the temple when Jesus is eight days old. And then he fast forwards to when Jesus is 12 year old, 12 years old at the temple. Matthew writes about the Magi, these wise men that come that are probably somewhere between the birth and two years old when they come to visit him. And then Matthew writes about when Mary and Joseph and Jesus go to Egypt, all right, which is probably one to two years after his birth, and then writes about later when they return to Nazareth, which most experts will tell you it's probably about three years later. And that is all we know of Jesus as a child. Like that is all we have recorded. In fact, other than being a carpenter, that's all we know about Joseph, too. Most people will tell you that they think he probably had passed away by the time Jesus began his ministry because his name is really never mentioned. Now, each of the week that we've been doing this series, we've looked at a question that one of our characters in the story asked. But this week, there wasn't a verbal question that was ever asked. However... I told you, I want to look at that question, what should I do in relation to Joseph? Because can you imagine that moment that Mary arrives back from Elizabeth and maybe she's showing just a little bit? Or maybe that conversation when she tells him, this is what the angel has told me. And that message that he receives is so unbelievable. Can you imagine the hurt that he probably feels that, why would she cheat on me? Or why would she at least lie to me about this? Or if she is lying, why would she make up such a crazy story for me to believe? Or even in the very slight chance that maybe he did believe her, maybe he's like, I still want to be apart from this situation. Like, I don't want to go around town with everyone looking at me saying, you got her pregnant before you were officially married. And in those moments, he's thinking about everything that has happened to get up to this point of what he's heard And he has to decide what he's going to do moving forward. I'm sure he feels humiliated. I'm sure he feels overwhelmed. And yet in that moment of what should I do, he decides I'm going to divorce her quietly. Joseph has to choose what he's going to do. And again, I told you maybe he never asked that question verbally, what should I do? But I wonder how many questions roll around in your mind, in my mind, that are never verbalized. But it doesn't mean that they're not there. Or maybe he asked those people close to him for advice. Hey, this is the situation. What would you do? Maybe he prayed about it. And maybe the angel was actually God's way of answering his prayer. In any case, the situation arose and Joseph had to decide, what should I do? Facing uncertainty, he decided to act in faith. Like To our knowledge, he never disbelieved in God, only Mary's message. So what should I do? That's a question that you and I, we ask a lot today, sometimes in big things, sometimes in little things. And I even just typed that into the internet, what should I do to see what popped up? And so there were all these ways to finish the sentence. What should I do with my life? What should I do today? What should I do for a career? What should I do if I test positive for COVID? What should I do for my birthday? What should I do when I'm bored? What should I do with my hair? Some of you, that was not so hard to figure out this morning. What should I do for a living? What should I do with my 401k? And even right now, as we're sitting here, there may be a situation that you are looking for this exact answer of this, what should I do in this situation? And you're hoping, I really hope Andy gives me the answer so I can walk out of here knowing exactly what that is. I can tell you God may work that way. I'm not gonna put him in a box. But if he doesn't, you can still choose to live righteously as Joseph did. 
Like even if you don't walk out of here with that exact answer, you can continue to obey what you do know God wants you to do. Because in the daily living of how he desires, he might use that to lead you to your answer. Remember, as I said a while ago, he's often working in ways that we don't see in the moment. One thing you might need to do is ask other people. Like God puts wise, godly people in our lives for a reason. And as they give you advice, make sure that what they tell you is aligns with Scripture. And there's a lot of people who just ask people advice who they know will say what they want to hear. And the result of that is a lot of bad, ungodly advice that should never be given. And the other thing you should be doing is praying. And that should be the first thing. Before everything else, you should pray, God, what is the answer? What do you want me to do? But don't just stop there. Then listen. Like, think about it. If you're talking to someone else and you just end the conversation and leave, you have no idea, you don't give them time for a response. How often do we do that with God? Well, I prayed, but he didn't answer yet. I haven't heard him, and so we just, like, take off leaving. We need to make sure that we're listening because sometimes God will answer quickly, and sometimes it takes a while. If he does answer, as you're trying to figure out what should I do, if he does answer, then may we be like Joseph who obeyed. Like, he took Mary to be his wife. In the middle of the night, he gets up and goes to Egypt because he was told to. He ends up coming back to Nazareth, again, being led by God. He was always obeying. And maybe you're still thinking, yes, but if I had a vision or I had an angel, I would know exactly what I'm supposed to do. But today, like, how do I know what God's will for me is? Like, how do I know what he wants for me or from me? You know, five and a half years ago, I preached a sermon about God's will that a lot of people told me that was really helpful. And in, this, in that sermon, we talked about different aspects of his will. And so let me just kind of tell you that. First of all, there is this thing called God's sovereign will, all right? God's sovereign will. This is his divine plan, which determines everything that happens. And underneath this, I think about 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, the Lord, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Like as you read this scripture, he says, the reason that Jesus has not come back yet is he wants more and more people to be in a relationship with him. He wants them to come to know him, to be with him for eternity. And so when Jesus died on a cross, that was not an accident. That was his plan to save all of mankind. And so God's overall will, his sovereign will, is that everyone would choose to be saved. And as long as you're living apart from him, whether that's you've never heard of him and so you're living in ignorance, or you've heard of him, but you're like, yeah, I just haven't decided to follow him or love him yet, then your life is not being lived under the umbrella of God's will. Like if you want to know what God's number one will for your life is, it is that you would be saved. That is his sovereign will. But then there's also this thing called his moral will. And that's where God's commands and scriptures are teaching us how we should live. In fact, this surprises a lot of people, but God cares more about your character than he does your job or where you live. I'm not saying he doesn't care about those things, but he cares more about who you are than what you do. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, the beginning of it, it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, 
That word means set apart. God wants you to be set apart. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You see, God wants you to live a holy life, one that is always worshiping him. And I get that the Bible has a lot of instructions on how to do this, but he also gives us lots of freedoms. And so there are so many ways that as we're in a relationship with God, we can continue to look for ways to give him praise by our words and our actions. And so maybe in that what should I do question, maybe you're wondering and you're looking at your options and one of them does not line up with Scripture. Like it does not line up with you already living the way that God has taught. And if that is the case, then you can knock that option out because that's not what God wants for your life. God's number one will is that you would be saved, but number two is that you would become more like him. But then we get to the part where most people really want to know about his individual will. And what that is, is it's God's uniquely designed plan for you as you're guided by the Holy Spirit. And I don't know what God's individual will for you is. Like sometimes people go, but I want to know that person that I'm supposed to marry. The Bible doesn't give any names as far as that, but it does say this is the type of person you should marry. Or maybe you're trying to figure out what job should I do. It won't tell you this is the exact job you need to do, but it does tell you this is the kind of person you should be while you're working. This is maybe the type of employer you should look for, that kind of things. But that decision that maybe you're struggling with, I just can't tell you the exact answer. I don't know if you're supposed to move, if you're supposed to change jobs, if you're supposed to have another child, you're supposed to add on to your house, you're supposed to buy that car, what your decision is with your elderly parents. I'm not sure if you're supposed to start cheering for Mizzou. Wait, actually, you should, even though most of you won't, but you still should. This question, though, what should I do? You know what? First off, you should check God's word. And if it goes against that, the answer is pretty clear. And as I mentioned, spend time praying and listening and ask wise and godly people who know scripture. And then here's some great news that may be pretty freeing to a lot of you. Because there are times that God has a specific will, will for you, a specific place, a specific job, people to work with. But I would argue more times than not, there may be two or more good choices that God places in front of you, and you get to choose. Like, you can actually choose. I'm not saying be lazy about this, but I believe that God knows what choice we're going to make, and so often he allows us to be able to choose. If you've been reading, if you've been praying, if you've been listening, you haven't heard a clear direction, I would encourage you to ask this one simple question. Can this please God? When you're looking at it, if I make this choice, can God use me? Can he be glorified? And I think most of the time, if the answer is yes, that it falls underneath God's will. Like so often, there's not just one way or one person or one place to go. And again, that can be freeing to a lot of people who are afraid of doing the wrong thing. I don't want to make this choice because what if it's the wrong one? What if it's the wrong one? Man, in my life, this has brought me a lot of freedom when I was trying to decide what college to go to. Some choices in early ministries like when I was pursuing Amy, or even here at SRCC, like there's a lot of freedom that was given when I understood just being able to glorify God in this. Now again, when you're seeking God's individual will for your life, do not ignore time in the Word or praying and listening. Like don't bypass those things saying, well, I prayed once, I read the book of Ruth, and I haven't found the answer, so I'm just going to make a choice, because Andy said, if I don't hear from God, I can make a choice. Like I'm not telling you that at all, because if that's what you do, 
you might miss the answer that God has for you. But if you've done those things and your choices still show that you can glorify God in either one of the options, then you get to choose. And again, I hope that's freeing because sometimes we're like, ah, did I choose right or am I about to choose right? Now, having said all that, I would also go back to if though, if God is pointing you in a direction, the Holy Spirit is leading you in a direction, you know the answer, your response should always be obedience. But what if the answer isn't what you want? What if, like, you're scared by that which he's leading you towards? What if you don't know how it's going to work out? Or, man, God is leading me this way, but this path seems so much harder than this one right over here. You know, if Joseph were standing here with us today, he would tell you that obeying God is always what you should do. He would also tell us that God will give you the strength to live out your faith amongst uncertainty if you choose obedience. He will give you the strength to do it. And so don't let your doubts, don't let your own desires, don't let difficulties drive you off the path of being able to experience the blessings that come from living underneath the will of God. So instead, may we do what we can to live underneath his will. And that starts by being in a relationship with him. And so if this morning, if you want to make that happen here during the song, I would encourage you to go to the prayer room because we have people there that want to pray alongside of you and help you with that. Then again, there may be a decision that you're going through. You've been asking this question, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And you simply need someone to pray alongside of you today. That You're not just having to tackle this on your own. And if that's you, then I would encourage you to go back there as well. Because God, he answers prayers. And he has already made a way for you and I to be with him forever. He came to earth with the purpose of dying on the cross so that all our sins can be wiped out. His love is greater than we can imagine. And he is a God that is worth obeying. Let's stand and sing to him.